Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live from the Calm Radio Studios here on Aranda Country in uh, Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911 and on 8KFM here in Abantua, Alice Springs. We're, of course, as well coming to you online via the uh, Karma website. That's uh, karma.com.au. Today is uh, Thursday, the 13th of June, 2019. I'm your host for the program, uh, Kyle Dowling, and you'll have my company up until 12 o'clock this morning. We're coming up on Strong Voices today in Canberra. Aboriginal children are overrepresented in care, with uh, being around 16 times more likely to be in care, according to the head of an Aboriginal health organisation in the ACT, who has questioned the decision-making process in regards to Indigenous child removal. We'll be hearing from her uh, shortly. Also, we're going to be hearing about impact investing and the critical way forward for uh, not-for-profit and charities uh, this morning as well, hearing from uh, Brad Swan from Life Without Barriers. Also, an exhibition of local recycled art pieces will be on display in Alice Springs soon. We're going to be hearing from the uh, curator of that exhibition this morning as well. And we're, of course, going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country here on Strong Voices. G'day, folks. This is Kutcher Edwards, and you're listening to our Strong Voices here on Karma Radio. That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio this Thursday morning. We're going to head into our first story now. As we reported in our news, the head of an Aboriginal health organisation in Canberra has questioned the decision-making progress in regards to Indigenous child removal in the ACT. According to Julie Tongs, who's the CEO of the Wenunga Nimbidja Aboriginal Health and Community Services, Aboriginal children are 16 times more likely to be in care than non-Aboriginal children and that this overrepresentation is nothing new. In Canberra, an Aboriginal child is 16 times more likely to be in out-of-home care. This isn't anything new for us. You know, I've been at Wenunga for 22 years and nothing's really changed in this space. Continually we see actual funding or funding for, for things such as child protection going to mainstream services that just don't deliver. And there is bias against our families and particularly our kinship carers. Following the ACT government calling for a review into the overrepresentation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in care, 
As a result of this, in early 2018, the Amburai's Airway Review was established. And in May 2019, the steering committee of that review presented its third set of recommendations to ACT Minister for Children, Youth and Families, Rachel Stephen-Smith. The Amburai's Airway Review outlined an apparent bias towards non-Indigenous foster carers, prompting concerns from Ms Tongs. I think that the review committee of the Our Bull Eyes, Our Way were kind when they said it was apparent bias. Well, we know that apparent bias is actually racism. Racism is alive and well, whether we like to admit it or not. And we need to call it for what it is. And, you know, the steering committee determined that of 108 cultural plans that it reviewed, a total of only nine involved consultation with the child community and only one involved consultation with an Aboriginal agency and three involved consultation with an Aboriginal person in the community. So of the 108 cultural plans reviewed, bizarrely only 35 were actually provided to the relevant child carer than an Aboriginal child to be made out of home care. Why, why is it important to have you know, Aboriginal organisations and Aboriginal people and the communities themselves involved in this actual process? Well, you know, these are our children. These are our, this is our future. And until we start to invest in intensive support for families, Aboriginal families, then we're never going to change anything. You know, we're just going to keep removing more and more kids into white foster care. And that's not the answer. Our kids need to be with family. They need to know connection. It is another stolen generation. You know, whichever way you look at it, we're heading back in that direction and we have been for a very long time. And you know, Kyle, and I think I've talked to you in years gone by about um, my advocacy for kids, for Aboriginal kids in out-of-home care, you know, and to try and change the system. Well, the thing is that that's how the review came about. And now because... There was another family that was affected that got dragged through the court for five years and found that the children that were removed were unjustly removed. They shouldn't have been removed. So now, you know, five years down the track, how do you then move them back to their mother? The damage is done. We need to be better at how we do this. And non-Aboriginal services that don't deliver shouldn't be putting their hands up to take Aboriginal funding for these programs. What are some of those Aboriginal specific programs and, and services that people are able to access in this space? Well in Canberra the funding under the Step Up for Our Kids strategy, there is no Aboriginal representation. Wanunga actually applied for the funding but we didn't receive any and it went to mainstream organisations, Bernardo's, the Australian Childhood Foundation, Premier Youth Works and Child. They were engaged to manage all the Aboriginal kids as well as the non-Aboriginal children under the step up for our kids and it's clearly not working. While acknowledging the safety of the child comes first, Ms Tong says the separation from culture, community and family is devastating. Well, it's devastating, you know, and the thing for us is that we're an Aboriginal health service and it's the way that we case manage our clients that brings us into the child protection space, the incarceration space, all these other spaces. There's two Aboriginal community-controlled services in Canberra, and that's Wanunga and Guggenthal, an Aboriginal Youth Service. 
And, you know, we really, really struggle on the ground. My staff often sit in these meetings with these services because they're there to support our client. But at the end of the day, these services treat my staff with disrespect. The clients have to ask can Wanunga um, staff say something on their behalf. We're there to represent our clients. These are the people that have had their kids removed or are about to have their kids removed. And we're working with 68 families in that position, and yet we're not funded. So what what are the next steps then from here, Julie? What needs to be done? What needs to, to change to see improvement in there? Do you, do you think it's a, a position where, you know, we need more sort of inquiries and things into this? Or what, what's your position? How many more inquiries do we need? You know, like how many more reviews, how many inquiries? We know where the problem areas are. We know we're the ones with the solutions to our own problems. We don't need others to try and come and fix it. We can manage that, but give us the resources to do it. So Aboriginal solutions, the way forward then? Absolutely, because if you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. And that's what we've got, a big problem. That was uh, Julie Tongs there, the CEO of Wanunga Nimitaja Aboriginal Health and Community Services, ending that report. We're going to go to our next story now, a new report on uh, impact investing, the critical way forward for not-for-profits and charities. says this type of investing is critical to the charity sector and will be worth a staggering uh, $35 billion in Australia alone in the next five years. Brad Swan from Life Without Barriers has overseen all Life Without Barriers' uh, impact investing programs, and he recently spoke with uh, Karma's Paul Wiles. Generally, not-for-profits or charities get funded by government as well as raise money through donations. So Australians nowadays are not giving as much to charities as they used to 10 years ago, and there's much more competition for that charity dollar. So this work is about how those charities might be able to diversify their income source and look at impact investing, where charities can use money from the financial sector to fund programs that provide both a social benefit and also a return on the investment. Impact investment. Tell us a little bit about that. It's been an increasing trend overseas in the United Kingdom and and the United States where large financial institutions or superannuation funds or individuals that, you know, have significant uh, funds available for philanthropic or investment will look at not-for-profit organisations where uh, they deliver services and looking at investment opportunities in those not-for-profit organisations to assist them in providing services to vulnerable people. We're talking about grassroots community organisations being a part of the process. Yeah, so those local community organisations can have a look at what they're providing, the services they provide, and some of those services could be attractive for investors to to invest in and assist them to deliver the services that they deliver. A lot of those organisations, you know, they can't do this on their own, Um, and so there are a number of people and other organisations like, you know, Social Ventures Australia or financial institutions like the National Australia Bank or Coda Capital that can work with not-for-profit organisations and have a look at what they have and see whether it can be packaged up and become attractive to investors. So in a sense, it's trying to make the provision of essential services in areas of need 
in a different way that might be more appealing to people who might have a large amount of money to invest. Yeah, so some of those um, people that do have money to invest, they're interested in doing um, social good, um, and so that they you know, would be interested in either funding services where governments have traditionally funded those services, and they can look at funding those services and governments get a benefit from that and therefore willing to repay that funding over time. They could also look at things like housing for vulnerable people or even you know, their own commercial premises that may be attractive for others to invest in. It's not um, something that every organisation will be able to do, but certainly there are lots of services that people are interested in investing in. And as I said before, there are people out there or organisations out there that are able to help Uh, charities or not-for-profit organisations have a look at what they provide and whether or not it would actually be attractive to investors. Certainly in the United Kingdom and in the United States that this has been a significant trend over the last five to ten years and it's just emerging um, in the Australian uh, context over the last couple of years. It's expected that that there would be significant funds available. There's certainly lots of um, individuals or organisations that are willing or looking for alternative ways and investing the the funds that they have available. Some of the different type of areas that um, potential investors might be interested in. Ourselves as Life Without Barriers, we um, are running a program at the moment which is um, aimed at uh, reducing juvenile re-offending. We've been running that program for about 18 months now with the support of the Queensland Government and we raised funds from investors to commence that program based on the fact that it would reduce juvenile re-offending and therefore the cost to government down the track. And the Queensland Government were prepared to support that program based on the fact that if we do achieve our outcomes, uh, then it would be considerable savings for government in the longer term. Youth justice reinvestment's one area. Can you think of any others? There's other programs that we're aware of, such as family support for individuals to um, help them look after their children rather than those young people um, entering the child protection system. There's also a lot of interest now in housing for people with a disability or other vulnerable people. So there's a range of programs. Um, that investors would be interested in. There's a couple of um, programs um, running in Australia now that have been funded through Impact Investment that are focusing on supporting families uh, to improve their parenting skills or address some of the social issues that they might have um, and therefore provide a safer um, home for young people and and able to keep their their children at home uh, rather than being removed. A lot of these areas are areas that one would expect government should be investing in. Obviously, the uh, taxpayer dollar doesn't quite go the distance and if there are people out there who do have money to invest I'd imagine that the government would be more than happy for uh, uh, organisations or individuals to be involved in that type of activity. Yes it's an important way in which you know, the not-for-profit organisations supported by government can raise additional funds up front um, and based on the success of those programs then investors get a return which is generally funded through government funding. It's um, important for not-for-profit organisations or charities out there to have a look at impact investing and see whether it's suitable to them um, and certainly if they're interested to you know, uh, talk to the Community Council of Australia and um, get in touch with somebody that might be able to help them have a look at what's available. On that note, uh, Brad Swan from Life Without Barriers. Many thanks for joining us, Brad. We'll watch on with great interest. Yeah, thank you.
That was Karma's Paul Wiles speaking with Brad Swan from Life Without Barriers. We're going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news very soon, so stick around. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices this morning and now it's time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. I'm very happy to welcome into the uh, Karma studio Karma's Damien Williams and Paul Wiles. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Karma. Good morning. We'll start with you, Damien. I understand you have a story this morning in regards to uh, trauma amongst the stolen generations. Yeah, the, this report from The Guardian um, has said that trauma and poverty uh, may be transferred directly to children of the stolen generations. Um, and uh, this, uh, according to a study, the Australian Institute uh, for Health and Welfare has found that compared with other Indigenous children, children in households with members of the stolen generations were significantly more likely to have missed school without permission um, in the last 12 months, live in a home not owned by a family member, um, report having been treated unfairly at school for being Indigenous, um, have experienced stress in the last 12 months as well, live in a household that had uh, cash flow problems, um, have poor self-assessed health as well. And, um, yeah, the the AIHW... The Australian Institute for Health and Welfare found that in 2014 and 15, there were almost 8,000 Indigenous children aged 0 to 14 who lived in the same household with a stolen generation family member, about 3% of all Indigenous children um, in the age group. So it's, you know, still continuing to see um, a lot of impact and uh, trauma from um the stolen generations and as we know uh it for some people it wasn't that long ago you know it's the yeah next uncle's generation or and and stuff like that so it's a lot of especially in other areas that were late um settled late um have still got a lot of impacts um and that's just some of the things that impact those children so yeah it's pretty hard for some mm. of them. It was some time ago there was a, uh, a report came out from um, Western Australia again, uh, the um, um, the intergenerational uh, flow-on of, of yeah. the stolen gen is now oh, it was virtually proven back then that, you know, it's not it's not something that's made up. Uh, no. It is a reality. And uh, um, when we sit and talk to uh, survivors, um, of uh, removal, forced removal, um, it's certainly something that is still with them every day. And, and for, you know, because they were conditioned from small children um, to 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 do certain things or, you know, a, way, a certain way of thinking and all that kind of stuff and, and a loss of culture and, and mm. language and that kind of things and, and it just transfers down for um, from them, you know, teaching their children those things you know unintentionally Mm. a lot of the times as well but yeah the trauma does carry on and i think the tragedy or or one of the many tragedies involved um is you know the not only the cover-up but uh, you know what what has happened is uh, over the time uh, successful aboriginal and torres strait islanders who were removed who've gone on to big and better things have been put up as you know role models and Mm. will look what happened but um, when we look at the numbers of 
successful Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as compared, compared to, the, to, yeah. to, to the numbers of, of those who are still living with trauma and grief. Um, the numbers don't balance out. And, and, I mean, those successful people, you know, have other traumas that um, they might not want to talk about or, you know, that affect them separately as well. And drive them. Mm. And you mentioned as well, Paul, you were talking about the, you know, reports talking about the trauma impacts, you know, we heard in Western Australia into the, uh, you know, tragic suicides there amongst young people that uh, the coroner herself, uh, Ros Fogliani, was actually acknowledging that intergenerational trauma actually played an impact in, I believe, the majority of those uh, tragic losses of life. So, as we know, those, you know, that trauma is still being felt and it's still having a deep impact. Very much so. Hmm. Well, on to our next story. We'll, we'll go to you, Paul. I understand uh, some... Uh, obviously, we mentioned yesterday a little bit about uh, National Congress of Australia's First Peoples. Uh, a little bit more on that today. Well, uh, yeah, it was announced um, yesterday that um, the National Congress uh, has gone into voluntary administration uh, six years after the then Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, cut funding uh, to the National Congress. Uh, the Congress uh, is hoping for... a a lifeline from uh, the new Federal Minister for uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, Ken Wyatt. Uh, Congress co-chairman Rod Little says that that without new federal funding, uh, the National Congress will close and uh, this will leave Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples without a strong united voice. Um, Congress, uh, since 2008, Congress has relied uh, almost solely on funding from the federal government which has been directed at key programs to benefit the First Nations peoples. Uh, A meeting of creditors uh, uh, is taking place um, and uh, um, Ken uh, Wyatt was meeting with Rod Little this morning in Canberra um, to have that conversation. So we'll uh, keep... uh, our finger on that and um, make sure that we can uh, uh, just see how that's progressing. Uh, there are, you know, as we had in our news, there are uh, a number of views around the country about the National Congress uh, and, and its role, but um, uh, at least it is a recognised body that has been uh, functioning and without a national body that's uh, whether it's broadly accepted or otherwise um, um, without any national body i think there's going to be uh, you know a big problem for the mob so having uh, a body such as national congress in canberra uh, is quite significant mm. yeah. well on that note uh, paul damien thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country thank you thank you Hey mob, this is Patrick Johnson and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. Yes, that's right. You're listening to Strong Voices this uh, Thursday, the 13th of June, 2019. Great to have your company this morning. Uh, On to our next story now. An art exhibition hosted by the Sustainable uh, Couture Collective and supported by the Alice Springs uh, Town Council is being held in one of... uh, 
the town's heritage-listed uh, houses, uh, the residency on uh, Parsons Street, and will be on show from Friday the 14th of June to the 18th of July. The exhibition features artwork and has been uh, made out of recycled materials that people have discarded and by a number of local artists from Alice Springs and the surrounding communities like Tichicala and Senatoriza. Karma's Damien Williams spoke with the curator, Isabel Milnes, about the Lost and Found exhibition. For the residencies, we're having an exhibition opening this Friday. Um, it's called Lost and Found Exhibition, and what it is is it's a side project from Sustainable Couture. The so Sustainable Couture, as most people know, um, there's these fabulous designers that create all these um, textile pieces and fashion pieces. But this little exhibition is actually art and design objects, the so sculptures, um, art pieces, um, and yeah, it's all coming together this Friday at the residency. And how did you get involved with, uh, you know, curating stuff at the residency? Oh my gosh, I just, I feel like, um, so my background is not curating at all. I feel like you just stay in this town long enough and then you, someone asks you to do something and then you end up kind of, yeah, doing something like this, so... Um, but really exciting project to be a part of. Um, yeah, so my role is coordinating um, a bunch of artists, which is a little bit like herding cats sometimes, but getting them to get all their pieces together and send me bits of paperwork and things like that. And, um, yeah, putting it all together. So how, how did this uh, Lost and Found exhibition sort of come about? So the exhibition is brought by Sustainable Couture, but it's sort of a standalone um side project, I guess. So the artists, they were all asked to exhibit a piece of art or design that was made from recycled or repurposed objects. So everything in the show will be made from, you know, like scrap bits of metal or things that, you know, might have been headed towards the tip that's now been made into art. And we've got some really impressive work, actually. We've been really lucky to have the Karinga artists and the Tapa Tajaka artists out at Tichikala. Um, who've also contributed. So we're really excited to have them because, I mean, who better than to show us than this particular guy, Johnny Young. I'll just tell you a bit of his background because I'm just amazed. So he makes art through Karinga Art Centre, but he started watching his uncle's carved soapstone and hand-stitched saddles, like as a young fella, um, and then started making toys to play with from batteries, nails, wire... And then when he started working as a stockman, in his spare time, just started creating bush toys um, from, like, salvaged materials. And then he made some work that got featured in the Telstra um, Art Awards up in Darwin. Um, So, yeah, we're really lucky to have him as part of the show. And he's, yeah, created some really cool figurines from recycled copper wire. And they're um, really intricately, like, wound tightly together and embellished um, with salvaged material. And he's he's painted them. I think I've seen some of his work as well. Like, does he make the little cowboys and that? Yes, he does. They're like, they're just super cool, like little intricate figurines that you just like, how did he do that? Yeah, so, yeah, so he's from out at Santa Teresa and we've also got um, from Santa, James Cavanaugh and Justin Hayes. Um, awesome. Yeah, and from the Tapa Tajaka artist, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, so please forgive me, everyone who does know how to say that correctly. Johnny Young again and David Wallace. And so similarly, yeah, like making really cool bits of um, art and design work that are just, I mean, of a really like outstanding quality. So we're really excited to have them as part of the show and from bits of scrap metal. Yeah, so... Like, it's fairly amazing with what they can do, you know, with 
with stuff that most of us would just throw away. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, recycling and and um, reusing a lot of that stuff. I mean, that's just like, uh, what's the saying? Uh, another man's junk is another man's treasure sort of thing. Totally. That's exactly it. Like, if you look at something in the right way and you have some, like, imagination and, and really, like, the the artisanship that these fellas have um, to be able to create something pretty magical and special out of stuff that most of us are just like, oh, my God, like, need a tip past, you know? You know? And, Isabel, I was just wondering as well, how, how long have these artists been working on these uh, particular pieces? Well, I'm not sure how long it's taken them to make to make each piece. But I know, I mean, they're, they're, those artists that I've mentioned, they're really established artists through those um, two art centres, the Kringa Art Centre and Tapatijaka Artists. So, yeah, they've contributed works that they've had through those art centres. But we also have a range of other local artists. We've got the Youth Recycled Art Prize winner, um, Georgia O'Neill. So she's made this amazing freestanding emu sculpture. Um, from Scrap Metal, and she's actually, yeah, she won the Youth Recycled Art Prize. And we've got Danila Renault, who he makes these um, incredible works in designer concrete. So he basically gets all these, like, bits of scrap, broken glass, etc., and he kind of mixes them all together, and he's made this really incredible table. Actually, if I had, yeah, if I had the money, I would buy it. <laughs> or, yeah. So, yeah, he's got all these little bits and pieces, like, within. And when you just look at the top of this table, you can just spot all the little bits and pieces, and you go, oh, right, like, that's a little bit of broken glass. Like, that's really cool. So we've got him. Lucky to have him, too. And we've got other um, artists, Zoya Godoroja from Watch This Space, um, has contributed a piece, and Jock Morse and Gretel Bull. We've also got some established artists, Carmel Ryan, Faye Alexander, um, Julie Taylor, um, so local. So it's a really just a celebration of our amazing local artists that we have in this town. Like we're so lucky to be surrounded by so much talent. Like for people like me who aren't talented, it makes you feel a bit like, oh my gosh. But um, yeah, but we can just celebrate like how amazing they all are. So, yeah. The, yeah. The, there are so many talented people in the centre. Yeah, there are like how how does it attract? So you know, I guess it is a pretty special place. And you got uh, you know a lot of inspiration out here as well. Oh, just like looking at those ranges. I'm pretty lucky. I'm in Gillen, and I can just see the ranges from my house. Yeah, and just looking at that every day, it is just a bit yeah of an inspiration, I guess, to to be a bit creative. And I guess yeah. that's what this exhibition is about: is like looking at stuff in a way that okay, like we don't. We have a problem with waste in our society and in the world, right? Like, we don't know what to do with it. We're throwing away with single-use plastics. Like, we're throwing stuff away that we don't have to. And, and this exhibition is just kind of going, okay, well, let's look at it differently and, and see what we can actually make um, mm. out, of, out of those things and reusing things and upcycling things. So Yeah. And, Isabel, just wanted to ask as well, um, how long did it take you to sort of um, get all the pieces together or, you know, get everyone together to, to get this exhibition happening? Yeah, so it's been a few months. So um, they've all been invited to be part of the exhibition um, and they're, yeah, given that brief of, you know, making something from um, reused or repurposed objects. Um, so, yeah, so it's kind of been in the mix. It started last year, so this is its second year running. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, it'll just continue to run every year. So it also works with the residency, which is one of our heritage buildings in the middle of town. So every, hopefully it'll be kind of an annual event. Just finally, Isabel, I just wanted to ask, um, what, which piece are you looking forward to most? That is such 
such a hard question. Um, okay. Oh, well, you're making me pick a favourite. What's the one? Um, what's the one that uh, you you really like? The standout. Well, I do really like that terrazzo table. I was talking about that concrete table, um, and that freestanding emu. But you know, like those those little figurines are just amazing as well. And, and we've got. Um, I'm running through my head. Um, you just have to come and see. Like, there's just so much. It's actually impossible to choose. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm going to be yeah politically correct of like not choose one because I don't <laughs> want to <laughs> get in trouble. So it's this Friday, six o'clock and six thirty. So come along. Um, it's welcome to to all. Um, it's free uh, in the centre of town. It goes for a couple of hours, so you know you can come after work or before you go out to something else. And six thirty, we've got Faye Alexander, who's the chair of the Heritage Association. Um, she'll be giving a little speech and a welcome and, and, yeah, kicking off from there. So Parsons Street Residency Lost and Found Exhibition. On that note... Be there or be square. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, Isabel, thanks very much for joining us here on Calm Radio. Thanks so much, Damien. Cheers. That was uh, Isabel Milnes there speaking with Karma's Damien Williams about the Lost and Found exhibition that will be held at the residency on Parsons Street from uh, June 14th to the 18th of July this year. We're going to be hearing from our very last story very soon here on Strong Voices. We are going to go to a quick break and then we'll be right back. On top of our strong voice, news about the Nguyen community or your station, Cam Radio and 8KN FM. You're listening to Strong Voices this Thursday morning. You're here with me, Kyle Dowling. Great to have your company today. We're going to head into our final story of Strong Voices now. Well, Julie Inman. Inman Grant has been recently travelling around, in particular in some schools in Darwin, promoting the e-safety campaign known as Keep Our Mob Safe Online. Karma Zarina Walker recently had an opportunity to interview Julie Inman Grant uh, this morning. Here's that conversation now. My name is Julie Inman Grant. I was born in the U.S. I've lived in Australia for 19 years, and I spent 25 years in the technology industry working for companies like Microsoft, Twitter, and Adobe. I have a particular interest in social justice and corporate social responsibility, so I've been working really at the intersection of where technology, public policy, and online safety intersect. Technology becomes more integral to our everyday lives, making sure that people are using it safely and are maximizing the benefits of technology while minimizing the risk is so important. So the e-safety office is the only government agency in the world that looks solely after the online safety of its citizens. It's a really important opportunity. We regulate the social media sites for safety. We have three major reporting lines. One is for youth-based cyberbullying. If a young person is seriously cyberbullied, and that's defined as anything that is seriously humiliating, threatening, intimidating or humiliating or harassing, and they report it to a social media site, if it's not taken down, they can come to us. We can compel them to take it down. And we've done that for about 1,200 young Australians that wouldn't have been able to get their harmful content taken down. That's really, really important because there's so much content that goes up on social media and they miss so many of these bullying complaints because they may not understand the cultural context or they may not understand that a particular post or tweet that may not look like bullying on its face likely has some tie into conflict that's happening in the schoolyard 
card in the neighborhood or between mobs, and they're not able to sort of look at that tweet or that post and make the right decision whether or not it comes down. And so that's where we can help Australians get that content taken down. We also help Australians if they've had intimate images shared without their consent or videos, so nudes, essentially. You know, obviously that's a very devastating thing and huge invasion of privacy when nudes are shared online for all to see. And so we've had an 80% success rate in terms of getting those images taken down from more than 150 different platforms, mostly porn sites that are located overseas. And then we also deal with all forms of illegal content, including child sexual abuse content and pro-terrorist content. Even just thinking about the the internet is such a, a huge platform. What I wanted to know as well is that the new e-safety campaign, which is called Keep Our Mob Safe Online. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that? Keep Our Mob Safe Online was developed with a 33 Creative, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander company that does amazing work in the community. And we really believe in the whole idea of co-design. So we want to design the resources and materials with the Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander community and for them. Understand that there is not a one-size-fits-all solution and that there are differences across the country. But we want to make it um, accessible and useful for these different cultural contexts. And that involves really understanding what the Indigenous community broadly is experiencing online. And that's what's been so great about this trip up to the Northern Territory. You know, it's really interesting that Indigenous households, about 75% are accessing the internet online, but that's not equal across the country. So the lowest usage of the internet is actually in the Northern Territory, which is at 55% versus Indigenous communities around Australia, about 75% using technology. I've heard a lot in the past couple days about um, how Facebook in particular is being used as almost an extension of conflict that might be happening between families or different mobs online. Fight videos are a real, real issue. And, and what that does is that escalates tensions that might already be existing, you know, interpersonally and in the real world. And what we really want people to be using technology to do is to build positive relationships and to be supporting each other. And there are some great organizations that working to help Indigenous families and communities do that. Kids are using their phones or their iPads quite regularly. So how important is it for parents and guardians to be able to keep an eye out uh, when children are using the internet? I think that's so important. And that's really the whole um, idea of Start the Chat is, you know, the minute you're handing over a digital device to your child, that's when you need to talk to them about the rights and responsibilities. But also let them know you're going to be as engaged in their online lives as you are their their everyday lives. We know that 81% of all Australian parents are giving their kids internet-enabled devices by the time they're four years old. So it's starting earlier. And, um, you know, when we were growing up, our, our moms used to plop us in front of the TV. But the difference there is, you know, the TV is a passive entertainment mechanism. It's showing us program content. We're using a smartphone or a tablet and it's connected to the internet. We're also opening up our worlds to strangers potentially. And we know from experience that it's not just a matter of if our young people are going to come across something confronting online. It's a matter of when. And we want to make sure that our kids are prepared to be able to address those issues, but also to let them know that we can approach them um, and they can they can come to us if they're experiencing any sort of a strife online. What would you say for young kids that 
may know kids that may be getting bullied. How, how is a, a good way to be able to stand up or tell the friends if they are getting bullied or they're, they're being targeted online? Yeah, what we talk a lot about is um, creating upstander behavior rather than bystander behavior. We need to teach uh, young people to be able to read a situation and assess whether it's safe to do so. We know that 50% of young people who are experiencing something confronting online, only half will go to a trusted an, an adult, whether it's an auntie or a teacher or a parent, but they're more likely to share with peers. So we do want young people to be prepared to help support their friends when they see things that are happening online. And one of the, the things that they, they could do is just to be there as, as a support, maybe even report that content to the social media site. The more reports the social media sites get about a particular tweet, the more likely to react. You can help your friend, if it's really serious, uh, report to the e-safety office, and we will try and advocate on behalf of that person. We also can't ignore the fact that bullying, um, particularly racism and hate online, can have a huge impact not only on our cultural identity and our personal identity, but also on our mental health. So at esafety.gov.au, we also have a, a well-being directory. So if there are mental health services you think your friend needs to get to just so they can talk to someone about what they're experiencing, there are great organizations like Kids Helpline that are there to help 24-7. That was uh, Julian Mann Grant there speaking about the e-safety campaign Keep Our Mob Safe Online. She was speaking with uh, Karma's Lorena Walker. We'll have a longer version of that story up on the Karma webpage. That's going to conclude Strong Voices for this morning. Thank you for tuning in. If you missed any of the stories or wanted to listen back to a podcast of the program, we'll be posting up that on Karma's SoundCloud this afternoon. Stay safe and enjoy the rest of your day. Strong Voices. Richard.